Thanks, Kev. Won't you take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 2 and verse 1. Um, Graham, would you mind putting up that passage for us again? We're just going to read through it uh, again. There's, there's so much detail that I, I don't want us to miss. And so won't you follow with me as we read? In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this was the first registration when Quinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house of David and lineage, sorry, the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from, from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing which has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Thanks, Graham. In the opening words of this passage, uh, one of the most well-known Christmas passages, we start with a man named Caesar Augustus. And if we do a little bit of historical digging, we learn that Caesar Augustus was actually the great nephew of Julius Caesar. And if I'm honest, the, most of what I knew about Julius Caesar before this sermon came from Asterix and Oblix. But in doing a little bit of digging, I think there's some detail which help us to process this passage. And so a little bit of background. Uh, the first bit of detail which we need to know is that every single emperor of Rome had a title of the greatest leader in the world. They were known as the leader of the land. But it was this Caesar who was the first to be called Augustus. And he got this title when he called his own senate to vote on giving him the title. Now, if that sounds like a little bit of a sham to you, it's because it is. Imagine ordering the Senate to declare you most humble, and if anyone voted no, they would find themselves without a job and maybe even a head. But let's be honest, the world that you and I live in, it seems rife with political pundits giving themselves oh-so-heavenly titles. One example is the past Ugandan leader, Idi Amin, who gave himself this title, and just excuse me if I, if I get it wrong at 
in time. His Excellency, President for Life, Field Marshal Al-Hadij, Dr. Idi Amin Dada, VC, DSO, MC, Lord of all the beasts of the earth and fish of the sea, and conqueror of the British Empire in Africa in general and Uganda in particular. He took it all the way. Now, while that might sound more spectacular than Augustus, I think it's only because we don't know what Augustus means. And when the Senate voted to give Caesar the title of Augustus, at the same time, they would have voted to strip him of every other earthly title he had, because at that time, he would have shifted from being a man to being a god. So at that point, he wasn't known as Caesar the Great or Caesar the leader of the land. He was now known as Caesar the Holy One, Caesar Augustus. And with this new title came a few perks. And that's the second piece of background, a little bit of history that we need to know is that Caesar's first actions as God was to set his birthday as the first day of the year in the Roman calendar and to declare that that day is the day that the Savior of the world was born. And so for anyone here, if you were born on September the 23rd, you're in slightly murderous, yet historically very good hands. And thirdly, Caesar would also clench one final power move as his time as the ruler of Rome, in which he would erect within the temple of war a memorial. And this memorial was made to remind everyone of the peace that Rome was enjoying. And to a degree, this peace was monumental. We must understand the world of Caesar at the time. There was wars around every corner. But under his rule, there were fewer wars, there were fewer uprisings, there were fewer takeovers, there were fewer sackings, there were fewer massacres than ever before in Roman history. And so you could say that there was world peace for the first time. But the irony shouldn't be lost on us. This monument was built in the temple of war. It was through Caesar and Rome's war efforts that the entire world was conquered and brought into submission and peace. Some historians, though, have pointed out how much easier it is to have peace with people when they're dead. It's this man that the passage opens up with. It's this man, this Caesar Augustus, the man who declared himself to be God, the man who proclaims himself to be savior of the world, and the man who says that he is the bringer of peace that we find at the forefront of this passage. And as we go through this birth accounts of Jesus, I want us to keep these titles, these things in mind. This is the world that Jesus was being born into. Jesus wasn't born in Vilgevo on a, on a sunny December, or for us, maybe a rainy December morning. He was born into a world where every detail surrounding his birth would have been a controversy. And so we move on. We, we see in verse 2 to 4 that Caesar, being the greedy man that he is, now declaring himself to be God, stretches out that greedy arm as far-flung as the Mediterranean Sea into the villages to try and squeeze out the last little bit of gold and the last little bit of wealth that he can from the people. And it's here in one of these Mediterranean villages that we find a peasant girl named Mary and her carpenter fiancé, Joseph. And it's Joseph who's being called as a representative for his family to go from, from Bethlehem to Jerusalem. And you can imagine the letter arriving at Joseph's home and Joseph needing to pack a sack full of his belongings for his journey. And as he finishes, he finds someone in the village willing to rent out a donkey. And he walks over to Mary's home and he takes his fiance, and they begin the 130-kilometer journey on foot. Now, 
this highlights something which we mustn't miss, something pretty amazing which seems to run all throughout the story and also the life and ministry of Jesus. Or if we look at who Jesus came to, he wasn't born into the God of Rome's family. He wasn't from a military line. The little baby in Mary's womb had been given to a peasant couple, the poor and the powerless, the insignificant and the forgotten. Now, if you've ever watched Lord of the Rings and you, you remember some of those camera shots over the New Zealand mountain heights as Frodo and Sam are taking the ring to Mount Doom, I think in part the, the journey must have felt a little bit similar for young Mary and Joseph. Joseph walking on his hard-worn feet throughout the dangerous areas, pulling the donkey forward as he led the way for his fiancée. Mary feeling every bump of the donkey's hooves as she felt the discomfort of the final stages of her pregnancy. And this is where everything shifts. For the next 14 verses, the whole story changes. We see the story of Jesus' birth come alive, and in it we see the incarnation we see God as man. We see the gifts that God gave at that first Christmas. And we see the results of knowing this little baby boy. And so won't you look with me in your Bibles from verse 6 to verse 7. We, we see the incarnation of Jesus. The journey continues here in verse 6 where Mary had arrived in Bethlehem and then suddenly the birth pains begin. Now, having only sat in on one birth so far, I know that you don't summarize that experience in short words. Some of the stories from many parents sound a little bit more like a Navy SEAL documentary than a hospital room, but Luke's words are hauntingly simple. And while they were there, the time came for, them to, for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. We must remember at that time that there was no Airbnb or lack of slav, there was no booking.com, and so accommodation for travelers was very, very basic. Often a small room at best with maybe a common area outside for your animals to be watered and fed. And if there was nowhere to stay in any of those inns, we, knew, well, we know from history that in the town corners, there was mass common areas where people would leave their animals, those that were even too smelly and stinky to leave in the town, there was often a small little fire for the poor to come and cook their meals, and there were some stalls for people to sit and wait and then leave. It's not exactly the kind of place that you wanted to spend very long, let alone give birth. And so it was probably there, in that place, where strangers tied up their animals, where the animals would mess, where people would come and go, where there was no privacy, where there was no honor, where there was no glory, that Mary gave birth to Jesus. I don't know about you, but I've seen a few of these royal ceremonies, these coronations on TV, and the amount of ceremony and pomp is unbelievable. Gold and jewels, people celebrating choirs, uh, orchestras, royalty from all over the world. You can't but help but pick up your jaw off of the floor when you see some of it. And yet here, the immense pain that Mary's body had undergone, the stench of animals and their mess, the poverty of Mary and Joseph, the indifference of the world around them, the humiliation and shame that Joseph would have felt in not being able to care for his wife. Kent Hughes says that it's enough to make a man either swear or cry. It's here that we find Mary and Joseph's hands in the winter nights in Jerusalem shaking as they would have wiped the blood off of little baby Jesus, as they would have wrapped him tightly in swaddling cloths and where they laid him in a manger. 
This is the great incarnation, the wonder of the coming of Jesus. There would have been no one else born that day whose hopes would have been seen as low as little baby Jesus. Born with nothing and to nothing and in the world's eyes for nothing. Kent Hughes says that we must never forget that this is where Christianity began. It's where it always begins, with a sense of need, a graced sense of one's insufficiency. Christ himself setting that example as he comes to the needy. It should actually shock us when we read this. It should bewilder us that the Son of God, the all-powerful, all-present, all-knowing Son of God came in this way. He came as a baby in this way. But what does the birth of Jesus mean to you? Now, I remember a few years ago on Christmas Day seeing all the WhatsApp statuses pop up and scrolling through them and seeing most of them say Merry Christmas and Happy New Year and something in between. And then a friend posted, Happy Birthday, Jesus. And I thought, yeah, that, that's not it. Um, we're not celebrating Jesus' birthday. We're celebrating far more than that. We're celebrating the good news that God has fulfilled his promise, the promise to send a savior into a dead and dying world in the sending of his one and only son. And while that savior came in human form and being wrapped in swaddling cloths, in his divinity, God's son came wrapped in human flesh. It's, it's here in Luke's account that we see a shift, a shift from the scene in Jerusalem in seeing this birth in the, in the cold winterside air to a scene out in the countryside near the city walls in which God was about to make known the gifts of Christmas, the gifts that he would give at that first Christmas. And so if we ask ourselves, what were these first gifts? Well, we see from verse 8 to verse 14, the first gift that God gave in his son is the God who understands and sympathizes. The God who understands and sympathizes. I think you, perhaps like me, we've used a phrase at some other point saying to someone, you just don't get it. Whether it's someone judging you, someone trying to give you unwanted advice, maybe interfering in your things, People just don't always get what we're going through. And this is why it's an amazing gift that Jesus came as a man. He came as a person, as a human, the God-man. He came, as the writer to the Hebrews says, as a high priest who is not unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. This is the great historical doctrine of the Christian church called the Incarnation, that the Son of God became real man, not just someone who appeared to be man. He came in a real body with a real mind, with real emotions. Some of the, the commentaries that I read really emphasize that when baby Jesus cried, he was a baby who was crying. He wasn't sitting there saying, I should put on so that the people around me don't freak out. He was actually a child. One theologian wrestling with this idea, wrestling with how God, in all of his glory, can become a little baby. He says it this way, the incarnation is like a symphony in all of its complexity and power, magnificence carried over a grand expanse. But when Jesus became man, he became a folk tune, simple and shortened, 
And in this, he lost nothing of his Godhead, nothing of his eternal character, nothing of his attributes, nothing of his purity, and nothing of his excellence. See, Jesus was still the symphony. He was still the eternal son of God, but he was also a simple tune, man wrapped in flesh. As John writes in, one, in John 1 verse 14 to 18, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. See, the incarnation is something which cannot be fully illustrated or understood. It's truly a mystery. How Jesus, who was God, fully submitted himself to, uh, in his humanity. How he learned to walk and talk. How he matured and grew in character. Harold Best says it beautifully where he says that Jesus Christ lived in a human body with a human mind and a human soul with all its limitations, except for sin. Now, I said at the start that Jesus' humanity was a gift. And if we understand that the instrument that Jesus would use to accomplish the goal of saving his people was not going to be a Senate vote like Caesar or a mass violence or murder, but rather in his humanity, I think it's there that we find ourselves far more able to connect with the person of Jesus. Perhaps this is also why some people who are not Christians struggle when we try to share the gospel. We don't show them the person of Christ. For us as Christians, we understand, we, we know in the Word, we know Jesus personally, we experience a relationship with God, but then sometimes we turn and we take an ethereal gospel out into the world and we're surprised when people find Jesus unrelatable. See, it's because of Jesus' humanity that you and I can, that, that we can be sure that Jesus understands us. It's because of his humanity that we can be sure that every single thing we do Everything we say, everything we think, Jesus understands. The writer to the Hebrews reminds us again, Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness. And because Jesus understands, because he sympathizes, he is an unbelievably trustworthy savior for us all. He is able to hear for us to share with him our deepest concerns our emotions, our hurts, our worries, our pains, our disappointments, this baby boy is worthy of that. A fellow pastor on Saturday evening at his church held what they called a blue Christmas. A blue Christmas. For everyone who Christmas is a very difficult time. An entire service pre-Christmas where people could come and share their extreme challenges that they face all filtered through the reality that Christmas is a celebration of the gift of the Son of God who knows exactly how they feel. That blue Christmas would be meaningless if it was all about presents, wouldn't it? But you and I can know that no matter what we're facing, because Jesus came to us as a baby boy, because he lived the life that we have lived, and because he knows you, your life, your every struggle, your good, your bad, your ups, your downs, Jesus sympathizes with you in your weakness. In the passage, we then see that Jesus is born. The story of this incarnation, the, the, the story of the Jesus coming, God made flesh, and we see that he's not only born, but the news begins to spread. 
And the first to hear it were, and you would almost imagine it would be the president of the country, maybe some of the royals, maybe some of the religious leaders would like to have a, have a look and see at the Son of God. No, our passage tells us that the first to hear were the shepherds. We read in verse 8 to 9, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Now, according to some Jewish texts, there was a ban on shepherds during this time. Uh, they were not allowed near the city of Rome. They were regarded as thieves, as lowlives, and the only reason that they would have even been allowed near Bethlehem is because they were looking after the sheep, which would have been used in the temple as sacrifices. Isn't that interesting, though? Isn't it interesting that these shepherds who were not allowed anywhere near Caesar Augustus, the Holy One, the God of the people, the one who was said to be the Savior of the world, the one who would bring peace, yet to these, these outcasts, these thieves, the unlikely, these poor in spirit, God brings Jesus. And so while these shepherds had no place in Rome, while they were not welcome amongst the rich and the religious, while they had no peace, God brings the, peace, the king of peace to them. In the same way today, it's not, uh, it's not meant to be profound to us, but we meant to see it in God's word that it's consistent that Jesus does not come to the proud or the religious, to those who think highly of themselves, to those who think they've got it all together, to the moral. To them, Jesus is nothing but a quick pit stop around Christmas. Jesus comes to the lost, to the needy, to the spiritually sick who see that their only hope is in Christ. The Apostle Paul highlights this reality to the Corinthian church. He reminds them to consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to shame things that are that no human being might boast in the presence of God. See, when the angels appeared to those shepherds and light broke through the darkness of that cold winter night, the glory of God was radiated and the announcement would have, shake, would have shaken them to their cause. But what is the incarnation of Jesus, the birth of God's only Son, meant for you? And so herein we see this first gift we see the first gift that God has given at the first Christmas, which is God, God who understands, God who sympathizes, God with us. The second gift that God has given in sending Jesus is the God who saves. We see in verse 10, the, the angel announces, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior who is Christ the Lord. I love the words of this angel's announcements. Can you imagine the only four sources of light in the entire world that you know of are fire, the sun, moon, and stars. And then a man appears radiating light, radiating God's glory, and then a multitude across the sky, and the first thing this angel says is, do not fear. Are you kidding? I think I would have been so far beyond fear at that point but the angel speaks for God. Do 
not fear. Well, why should, he, why should the shepherds not fear? Not because the angels were powerless, not because the angels were sinless, not because the, angel, not, sorry, not because the shepherds were powerless, uh, not because the shepherds were sinless, not because of anything that they could do, but because the angels brought good news. In a sense, God sends a cohort of messengers into a foreign battlefield to their sentries who are on duty out in the fields and to shout out a message, do not fear for salvation has arrived. See, being saved, this idea of salvation is a, is a funny thing. It's almost completely relative. And, and just hear this before you stone me. To those who don't want it, the idea of being saved is offensive. To those who don't think they need it, it's confusing. But to those who see their need for it, it's electrifying, it's breathtaking to know that you can be saved. It's in this announcement that we're caught up with the shepherds and God calls us to do that introspection for ourselves. Have we forgotten that we needed saving? Do we believe that we needed saving? Or has salvation become boring, annoying, and maybe even a little confusing to us? Or maybe a litmus test for our hearts this morning. If you want to take the temperature of your soul, don't do it by measuring your excitement for Christmas. Do it by measuring your thanksgiving for Jesus. Do it by measuring your heart's response to the giving of God's one and only Son who came to save you from your sin. And perhaps your heart, like mine, reads colder than it should, colder than God deserves. And it needs stirring. And if that's you, listen with me to the words of 1 Peter 2, verse 24. He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Friends, shouldn't our hearts be so warm that it bubbles over? Shouldn't we present with spiritual temperatures because we're so wrapped up in the goodness of God in sending us his Son? In a sense, then, there are really only two acceptable responses to this cohort of angels. The first is utter fear. Fear because you and I, because we're sinners. Fear because the shepherds were sinners. Fear because we're not able to stand in the presence of a holy God. The second being unshakable thanksgiving and joy over the Savior of the world being sent to us. And so, yes, the angels are correct to say, do not fear, but only if the shepherds will respond to the salvation that is offered. And so the angel doesn't say, don't fear, because you're amazing just the way you are, or that your sins are not important. Rather, the angels say, do not fear, because God has taken the initiative to send and bring good news of great joy, a Savior, Christ the Lord. Friends, can I be so bold as to say this? That Christmas is only good news for Christians. It's only good news for people who know that they are sinners, that they are broken, that they are wretches, that they are weary, that they are too far gone, that they are poor in spirit, for those who know they need a Savior. If you are not these things, then Christmas is only as good as the presence under the tree today. It's only as good as the singing and the temporary decorations, for tomorrow on Boxing Day, the world changes again and everyone heads towards New Year's because the temporary hype of a Christless Christmas will be over. 
On the other hand, if you have a Christ-filled Christmas, you have everything. So much so that the heavens opened up in front of the shepherds and the host of the angels cry out, glory to God in the highest and peace to those with whom the Lord is pleased. And so if you're here today and you're not a Christian, please hear me. Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners and he can save you too. And so let these two gifts be highlighted. The gift that God gave in sending his son, who's a, a God who loves us, who understands and who sympathizes, but a God who doesn't just sympathize with our weakness, but who came to save. And so going back to our main points, we've seen the incarnation of Jesus. We've seen the meaning of his coming and the gifts that God has sent Jesus to bring. And now lastly, we see the effects of knowing this baby boy. In verse 15 to 20. Something which I think is universally true is that each and every single one of us wants our lives to have purpose. We want to have meaning. We want our lives to accomplish something. In the same way, when something uh, comes up to us and when, when someone comes up to us and they, they want to see their life have meaning, they, they come and they speak to a Christian. When someone asks questions, when something comes up in conversation and someone says, why should I become a Christian? How do I benefit? What is this all about? I think it's within the modern mindset of people today, within the sinfulness of our own hearts, within the desire within each of us to crown ourselves as good, to crown ourselves as not needing a savior. I think it's there that we find the counterculture points of this sermon to be offensive. The coming of Jesus was not a religious cost-benefit analysis. The coming of Jesus was not something to simply be considered. Seeing baby Jesus lying in the manger was not meant to cause us to sit back and to think about whether or not this is worth our time. It's meant to provoke something far deeper within our souls. And as we read from verse 15, we pick up on this change even in the lives of the shepherds. Even though they've just gone through, quite honestly, the most emotional and visual roller coaster of the angels of God worshiping before them, their hearts were exploding with awe not to sit and wait for another show, but a desire to go and take what they have seen to those that would hear. We read in verse 15 to 20, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened that the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. What's amazing, even though what had just happened, these shepherds were not looking for another religious experience or they would have simply waited on that spot for another choir angel army to appear. Rather, they trust the words that God has given to them. They believe God. Imagine this scene. The, the darkness of the night sky returns. All that light disappears, and suddenly all you have in front of you is a little fire and maybe a little food on the roast. While the shepherds would have had their sheep corralled around them, they're not about to stay and watch their sheep 
that evening. And so they pack up. They begin sprinting across the countryside to where the star is pointing them. They run through the city streets. They bump into foreign travelers, all coming to Jerusalem to register their families and pay their taxes just like Mary and Joseph. And there they see it, in the courtyard, a young family sitting out by their fire with something small wrapped and lying in a manger. And so they walk over to Mary and Joseph. They greet them, and there they see him, lying in a manger, the little baby Jesus. Imagine for a moment what that contrast must have felt like. Quiet of angels, radiant light piercing the sky, God's glory and worship on full display, and then a little baby lying in a manger. Now, I don't care who you are. It takes unshakable, unwavering, completely ridiculous and committed faith to go from that experience, from seeing all of that, and then looking down and trusting that this baby boy is what they were speaking about. See, these shepherds are so convinced that they even begin to speak to passers-by, other visitors, people coming in, tying up their donkeys and horses. And we read in verse 18 that all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. How can this be? Can you imagine the ridiculousness of walking past, seeing a baby and hearing he will be the savior of the world? How can it be that this baby boy is the true son of God, not by counsel or by vote, but by nature? How can it be that this baby boy is the true savior of the world? How can it be that this, true, this baby boy will be the true bringer of peace, not by the sword like Caesar, but by being the sin crusher which God had promised? Not the shepherds, nor Joseph, nor Mary would have been able to answer those questions that evening. None of them would have been able to give some theological answer. But what the shepherds did know is that the birth of Jesus wasn't meant to be a tourist attraction, where people come in and pop their their heads in once a year and say, wow, that's nice. One author says it, even if Christ was born a million times, in a million places, unless you respond personally with the same faith of the shepherds, a trusting in God faith, a trusting that this Jesus is the savior of the world, the glory of God being sent to bring good news to you, you are as lost as you will ever be. See, religious sentiment even around Christmas time without Christ as your personal Lord and savior is nothing. Friends here this morning, the Holy Spirit includes this story, the story of the birth of Jesus in the Word of God, so that you and I will have a constant reminder of what Christmas is all about. Christmas is about the real Savior of the world, not Caesar Augustus, nor anything else that you and I can hope in today. It's about the real Savior of the world, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came to earth as a little baby boy who lived out life as a man, yet without sin, who was taken and crucified in our place, and who rose again from the grave, defeating death, and who now lives gloriously at the right hand of the Father. So the announcements of the angel, the angel is true. Jesus did indeed come to bring good news of great joy to his people. And so this Christmas, ask yourself whether or not you are responding like the shepherds. Do you believe 
when you learn of Jesus, when you think of Jesus, are you willing to drop everything else in your life and run to him to see Christ, the Savior of the world? Are you willing to leave everything else behind and embrace joy to the world? The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Well, my prayer is that every single one of us today will enjoy every aspect of Christmas, remembering that it's in Christ that we have the ultimate gift, remembering that today is about our risen Lord Jesus Christ being born 2,000 years ago in a little stable in the most humble of means so that you and me, so that we could come to know him, be saved, and enjoy eternity with God forever. Won't you please bow your heads as we pray. Our gracious and loving God, we thank you this morning. We thank you for giving us your son. We thank you, Lord, that even as we look into your word, we're reminded again and again what Christmas is really about. And we thank you, Lord. We thank you for reorienting our hearts. We thank you, Lord, because all the distractions around us are so overwhelming. We thank you, Lord, that even in giving good gifts, even in enjoying fellowship and good food, we thank you, Lord, that all of these things point ultimately to Christ. Thank you, Lord, for your love for us. Thank you, Lord, that Jesus is good news for all people. And so, Lord, would you compel our hearts, would you draw us to yourself that we would respond with the same joy of the shepherds, taking the message to all that we would know, glorifying you, praising your name forever. And so, Lord, as we leave today, would you please bless us as we go. We thank you, Lord, for your love for us in sending your Son. We ask, Lord, that you would please help us Help us to stay focused on you. Help us to be thankful for Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.